0: You can't assume that that is the exact same exposure as a population, a completely different dietary pattern in a population with a higher background risk. It's important that we think about all of these things and don't try to come to kind of overly general and simplistic conclusions if they're not available for us to do so.
1: Welcome to the Proof
0: Podcast,
1: a space for science based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits. That come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Howdy, friends. Glad to be back here together again. I hope that you've been keeping well. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. Today, I sit down with Dr. Alan Flanagan. To tackle the mighty topic of dairy foods and human health. Now, you might be thinking, why on earth is Simon chatting about dairy? Well, here's why. Just a quick browse of social media, best selling books, and mainstream media headlines will likely leave one very confused about dairy. I don't know about you, but I think it's interesting to explore. Is dairy really inflammatory? Does it increase the risk of cancer? Is dairy protective for cardiovascular disease? Or does it negatively affect blood cholesterol? Is dairy good for our gut bugs? Despite the clear environmental impact and animal welfare issues attached to dairy production, which are, of course, tremendously important issues, I think we should be able to ponder the answers to these questions through an objective, scientific lens. Personally, I don't consume dairy, and nothing in this episode made me want to change that, but it did confirm what I thought, that when it comes to dairy and our health, it's certainly a misunderstood food group so with that i invite you to bring an open mind and come with me on this objective exploration of all things dairy this is me and dr alan flanagan please enjoy one of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health you can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, There is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter a meal. A meal is a plant based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750mg of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2-3 to pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Alan Flanagan, take two. Welcome back, mate. It's uh, been a little while since we last caught up, but great to have you back. Yeah,
0: it's great to be back, mate. And uh, yeah, I think in take one, we were discussing kind of the, you know, seven countries study and how myths don't die in nutrition. <laughs> so here we still
1: are. I think some folks listening might be thinking, why is Simon dedicating an episode to dairy? He doesn't <laughs> consume it. What are we doing? Um, so maybe I can I can kind of give a bit of background on that. Uh, from From my point of view, the, the reason that I wanted to, to do this episode with you was more general intrigue with regards to, Polarity among the views held mm. by those uh, those online and in the mainstream media about dairy and, and whether it's healthy or not. You know, for example, the likes of Neil Barnard and Michael Greger, Mark Hyman, uh, Caldwell Esselstyn, yeah, and also several people in the paleo community who take the position that an optimal diet for everyone is dairy free. It must be dairy free, mm-hmm. and then there are other folks like. For example, the Sonnenbergs, who I've had on this show, who do research on the microbiome, um, and and uh, Mario Kratz, for example, mm-hmm. who take the position that dairy, at least specific types, can be can actually be health promoting, and there's a lot of different sort of specific claims within these positions. For example, uh, dairy is inflammatory, that's one that you'll see quite a lot. Uh, Dairy causes cancer, Mm -hmm. dairy is bad for bone health, dairy is good for bone health, Uh, dairy is beneficial for the microbiome, et cetera, et cetera. And I recently did an episode, I'm not sure if you saw it, that reminded me of all this confusion. It was an episode with a biochemist called Jared Rains, who is working for a company that's producing animal-free dairy proteins yes. via uh, precision fermentation. And I was interested in that because I'm also acutely aware of growing population and, and need to produce enough protein sustainably. And, and I thought it was worth having that conversation and sort of understanding this new area of food. So having received a bunch of questions from people after that episode about dairy, I thought let's get Alan on and and just better understand what the science says about dairy. And then we can sort of perhaps make sense of why there are a lot of different views out there. Is it because the science is unclear? Is it because of industry funded science? Is it because it's a very heterogeneous food group? Is it because of the way it's produced and and the way it affects animals and and that's affecting how people interpret the evidence and and so on. So perhaps to kind of kick things off, mm. what is it about dairy that firstly sort of makes this an interesting food
0: group to discuss and study? I think it's the diversity of it, um, and so I think I think that there's 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 really you know this this is not we use the term dairy, right uh, but this is an umbrella term for a really heterogeneous food group right it's it's there's multiple uh, levels upon which we could make distinctions in this within this food group. so we could make distinctions along whether it's fermented or not. we could make distinctions based on its uh, dietary fat content. We could make distinctions based on whether it's refined like butter or unrefined and fermented like something like cheese or yogurt. We could make a distinction whether it's a solid or a liquid, milk or again, you know, uh, a cheese or yogurt. So it's at the level of the food group we t- we typically just use this term dairy, um, but that's not really sufficiently granular for us to explore the associated health effects of this really broad food group. Um, and so, there 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 literally is no one universal conclusion that anyone could come to in relation to quote dairy. As a food group, like there is no conclusion anyone can reach about that term because that term is too unspecific um, to to discuss the kind of health implications. And when we think about its role in in the diet, uh, there's any number of background factors that are also relevant in terms of wider populations that consume it, the background diet of that population. Um, their habitual adaptation to dairy, although there's even evidence of that changing. If you look at countries like China, for example, they have significantly more overall dairy consumption than they would have 20 years ago. Um, but there are there are a lot of background population factors um, that go into its consumption, the magnitude of its consumption and otherwise. So if we're setting aside, which is important... The environmental or even moral and ethical considerations, which which I, I appreciate for your audience, is likely, a, and each of those or any number of them together is likely a really important factor in their sure. determining their dietary decisions. And that's absolutely an important conversation. But we should be able to have distinct conversations about these. And I think what's happened in recent years is we've really blurred the lines between being able to have a conversation purely at the level of the nutrition kind of side of it Mm -hmm. and contribution to health or otherwise, um, versus then saying, well, there are these kind of environmental, ethical, or other considerations, which are really important, but what is kind of happening now is people are reverse engineering from the environmental, moral, and ethical place to then color their view of... The research so they're incapable sure. because of the stance they take in relation to those other issues to actually have a reasoned or objective interpretation of the of the research side
1: mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I
0: really want to bring to folks attention is that
1: it's okay to opt out of a food but at the same time objectively review the literature and objectively communicate what the evidence shows from a human health point of view exactly and I tried to do that in my book, and I and I have had some some good feedback from people. So I think people do appreciate that when you are able to go into to some of the the nuance. Um, do you, that point that you made about the the sort of umbrella term of dairy being unspecific. Mm. That actually gets me thinking about other food groups, and even if we thought about say fruit. Yes. Uh, For example, a mango is very different to an avocado. So is this something that exists uh, across nutrition?
0: I I think yes, generally speaking. Um, Although, you know, depending on the food group, there might be kind of more homogeneity. Like if we think of, say, beans and legumes, for example, although they may differ in subtle ways, if you look at their macronutrient composition, you know, they might differ a little bit in fiber, but kind of overall their fiber content similar. You know, they might differ in protein content and quality, but overall, you know, it's kind of simple. And so you do get some food groups that might have a degree of more consistency in terms of the kind of nutrition that you would derive from that food group. But yeah, I mean, I think I think I think fruits a good example of that. I think you know, obviously, vegetables are a good example of that mm. in terms of diversity and related nutrient content, um, particularly mm. as it relates to other interesting non-nutritive compounds like polyphenols. Mm. Why do you think that
1: we just tend to sort of lump, you know, so many foods under one umbrella? Is it is it just uh, because performing these observational
0: studies it makes it easier from a data analysis point of view i think there's probably that i think if you look at the evolution of a lot of you know nutritional epidemiology it's typically come from starting at a much broader definition and then someone comes along and goes well hold on a minute Actually, this study looked at total dairy intake, for example. But maybe there's a difference between low-fat dairy consumption and and whole milk or full-fat dairy consumption. Uh, so let's look at that. Or maybe there's a difference between fermented and unfermented. Unter- let's look at that. Maybe there's a difference if we're thinking at the level of nutrients. Maybe you know there's a difference. Okay, so you know the epidemiology early in the nineteen kind of sixties and seventies is like well, looking total saturated fat. And then you might get someone saying, well, actually, what if the saturated fat in red meat is more associated with risk than saturated fat in, uh, you know, yogurt, for example. So over time, I think that's just science doing its work. Over time, you get this kind of. You know, evolution. Um, And again, this is not a a thing that uh, an observation that's unique even to dairy. Like we've seen it happen with um, other food groups as well. We've seen it happen with um, fruit, for example, where you have, say, overall fruit consumption. If you look at some of the neurodegenerative disease epidemiology, you know, overall fruit consumption wasn't particularly convincing, you know, and it's not exactly that fruit's an unhealthy food group. And then you've got other researchers come along and be like, well, actually some fruits much richer in flavonoids and other polyphenol contents. Mm -hmm. What if we look at differences between type of fruit? And of course, then you see that some fruits were not necessarily strongly associated, but other fruits like dark pigmented berries and citrus fruits more consistently associated. So I think that's just science doing its thing and evolving over time in terms of the types of questions researchers are asking until we get to a point where we're kind of at now where we have an understanding of a lot of nuance in the in the evidence base. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing.
1: Right. Yeah, we, we, we can get a bit more granular over time. I'm, I'm after a soundbite here before we jump into things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that Alan, Dr. Alan Flanagan, he's he's definitely good for a soundbite. Um, uh-huh. I'm interested in how accurately you believe the, the research on dairy and human health is currently being portrayed on social media.
0: Uh, I'm going to say not at all. Um And I'm going to say that what we're seeing in that conversation is a real, I think, um, urge to portray this food group in the most negative light possible. And that relates to all sorts of claims, whether it's to do with inflammation or otherwise. But it seems to me... Other and this is this this what I find interesting about this is as it relates to other foods of animal origin, there appears to be relative to what the actual research says a really disproportionate lobbying <laughs> against dairy specifically as as a food group. One of the things, Alan, that
1: I see online is how can we we really be sure how dairy affects our health when so much of the literature is funded by the dairy industry? Particularly when we know that, that industry-funded research is far more likely to find a neutral or positive result for the food or food group that they profit from. What are your thoughts on that if someone is thinking this?
0: Mm, I think, there's a couple of levels we can think about industry funding. And it is important that we do think about it in any research context, biomedical, nutrition, or otherwise. Um the first is most of the epidemiology is not industry funded. You don't necessarily need industry funded to funding to look at populations. So so the at the level of epidemiology, this isn't something that is necessarily going to be as influential as people might think. I think the second factor then is, in terms of interventions, which are much more likely to be, uh, have, ha- because they need a, a source of funding in order to experimentally carry out whatever design that they have proposed, uh, I think it's really important to scrutinize methodology. And I think that ultimately, industry funding is something to be aware of as an amber light, but it's not an instant red light what makes it potentially shift from amber to red is if there are some methodological factors that, uh, you know, are not satisfactory in a critical appraisal of that paper, like is randomization method uh, mentioned? and Was that method appropriate? What was the recruiting method? Uh, And all these kind of really kind of more nitty-gritty questions. And if a study ultimately stands up to a methodological, critical appraisal, then I don't think that we need to be as concerned with the source of the funding. So I think it's always Mm -hmm. something that we need to consider. But the idea that it invalidates an entire area of research (laughs) uh, is really just using that as an excuse to come to a conclusion probably someone would reach otherwise. At a high level, if we
1: consider the kind of current evidence that exists on dairy and and human health outcomes and looking at how dairy affects, say, established biomarkers, uh, risk factors for disease relative to other food groups like red meat or fish or or even fruits and vegetables. How comprehensive, how well studied is, is dairy? How comprehensive is the body of evidence looking at this relationship?
0: Yeah, I mean it's 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 been a mainstay food group in uh, Western populations, um European populations. It's expanded in terms of consumption. It's also a really important food group in countries with traditionally vegetarian populations like the subcontinent. Um so we we have a fairly enormous <laughs> body of of evidence um at both the level of epidemiology and in terms of intervention trials and in terms of, you know, mechanistic research as well and understanding differential effects of fatty acids or effects on, you know, intermediate risk factors and otherwise. So, and as we kind of alluded to previously, we also have within this quite substantial body of evidence the granularity to be able to distinguish between some of these characteristics of mm-hmm. dairy produce, rather than just try and come to some all-encompassing umbrella conclusion in relation to the word dairy, which really isn't necessarily possible. So if you were going to kind of, let's say, summarize or break that down before we get into the
1: specifics of some of these claims and where the evidence lies, let's say you're, you're out at a pub mm-hmm. in London I know that you like mm-hmm. to do that. I do. And uh, <laughs> a mate comes up and says, he, he knows nothing about nutrition, but he's he's interested in making healthy choices. And he says, Alan, I'm, I'm very confused about dairy. I see all sorts of opinions online. I'm trying to work out if I should include dairy, specific types of dairy in my diet, if there are some that I should avoid. And and let's say for the sake of this hypothetical, he says to you, I'm I'm going to separately look into the environmental impact and ethical uh, questions that come with the production and consumption of dairy. But he's asking you about the specific types of dairy, how they affect health and what your advice would be to him. How would you summarize that to him and what would your kind of recommendations be?
0: Uh, Top line, I'd say yogurt and cheese. (laughs) Um, And then... If, if, if they drank milk, I think that there is possibly a case to make for a kind of lower fat version um, of milk overall, largely because a lot of yogurts and cheese would contain more dairy fat, but that's dairy fat that kind of behaves differently. And again, yogurt and cheese would be defined as fermented products in this context. So so that's that's kind of where I'd end up saying within the food group and you know so yogurts cheese and and perhaps some milk and depending on their wider diet that would influence whether it necessarily should be something more on the kind of non-fat or low-fat variety mm-hmm. um and I'd say to you know like be careful with foods like butter and definitely don't be putting it in your coffee because that's that's, mm-hmm. not, that's not within this category of, you know, health-promoting uh, foods. And I'd, you know, highlight that those kind of foods are, you know, consistent, not just with some of the epidemiology directly looking at them, but also even wider healthy dietary patterns that we see in, say, the Blue Zones, some of the Blue Zones countries, the Mediterranean diet. Pattern, you know, th- these are the foods within this umbrella term of dairy. These are the specific foods that typically are what the consumption is reflected of in that mm-hmm. dietary pattern. Uh, so, yeah, so, okay. So, as we go through some of
1: these different claims and studies, I think it would be good for us to to along the way to to point out why cheese and yogurt may behave differently mm-hmm. to some of the other. Dairy products, and and I've heard you speak about that before, with regards to the matrix, and mm-hmm. um, you know how 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 that may affect some some of these um, biomarkers or risk factors differently. Um, before we we get into that, I do have a, a question, and I've always wondered this, and I haven't asked anyone, so I'm I'm not sure if you've looked into it, but do you think there would be a difference between, say, industrially produced cheese and yogurt in America today versus more local um, traditionally produced dairy in areas of Europe, for example?
0: I think it would really depend on what that method of production is and whether you're still getting some of the effects of culturing, um, Mm -hmm. which is something that is going to obviously influence the actual fermentation process and the outcome and the kind of alteration composition to the perhaps the fat content specifically um and it would depend on of course like the the addition of live cultures itself as as part of that and what survives that production process so I I don't know enough about the food science side of things. I think it's a really interesting question, and I'd I'd be really keen to actually get an answer from someone that maybe works in more the food Mm. science side of of nutrition research to to understand whether that level of yeah, kind of mass production does really fundamentally alter the process of uh, culturation and fermentation.
1: Yeah, it's just something that I've seen. I've seen passing comments. I, I certainly haven't seen um, any solid evidence on it. It's a similar one that I see when when people talk about olive oil and yeah. different sort of qualities of of olive oil. But um, an interesting one to maybe come back to at some time. Yeah. So let's let's start here with cardiovascular disease, uh, the focus of our last episode. Actually, what do we know about the effect of dairy or specific dairy foods on uh, biomarkers that are known to, say, you know, raise the risk of cardiovascular disease like LDL cholesterol or ApoB levels or inflammation or blood pressure, etc.
0: Yeah, some, so, so mostly, you know, from a cardiovascular perspective, the kind of the major risk factors that would have been identified in the early epidemiology were... Uh, body weight, um, smoking, alcohol intake, blood pressure, blood cholesterol, um, and 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 kind of rather than revise that whole period uh, again as we did with the previous episode. I think just as a kind of synopsis of where we're at in 2022, you know, we know that smoking rates uh, have enormously reduced, particularly in 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 kind of Western industrial populations. We know that. Uh, population-wide body weight and adiposity has has increased significantly. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons why cardiovascular disease remains a significant uh, mortality burden in populations. And then we've got the kind of intermediate risk factors like blood pressure and blood cholesterol. And as far as dairy goes, again, this umbrella term, this is where a really good example of why we need to be granular okay so we can't say that there is just an impact of dairy per se on blood cholesterol levels for example because it depends on the type of dairy Um, certainly the early epidemiology and indeed everything we know now about butter shows that butter has quite a pronounced impact on raising LDL cholesterol and, and ApoB uh, lipoproteins, and and we know that from robustly controlled metabolic ward studies that have literally fed people <laughs> butter specifically in relation and and, and other kind of uh, and other uh, sources of fat, and um, and and this is a good example of why these processes that we talked about are important. So because butter is churned to refine it, that process of refinement of butter removes a protective layer uh, around the milk fat. Um, it removes other beneficial aspects of dairy, uh, for example, like the calcium content is significantly lower um, than it would be in, say, a yogurt or a cheese. Uh, so you kind of end up really with a pure saturated fat that's absent the other food matrix characteristics that, say, a yogurt or a cheese have. And we have a number of interventions that have compared butter To cheese. And you would see, depending on the background diet, depending on the intervention, we uniformly butter will have a much greater impact on raising LDL cholesterol levels. And cheese, depending on the background diet and the level of cheese, um, either has a neutral effect or, in some cases, a a modest cholesterol lowering effect. Um, And so that's an important because that's not only a comparison within the class of dairy it's a comparison within the class of saturated fat and saturated fatty acids. And it doesn't extend to other food sources of saturated fat, even beyond just the category of dairy. Uh, So, you know, people have really tried to, in particularly review papers, to really overstate the specific findings in relation to dairy and, and relation to cheese and yogurt specifically to then mount a wider argument that, Hey, you know, this is why we can't say saturated fat is associated with cardiovascular disease. And it's a really gross over extrapolation of what is actually quite a narrow exception. Mm-hmm. And it's not an exception that proves the rule in this context. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'll ask your question on that.
1: Yeah. So you're, so what you're saying there is that for some reason, Despite the saturated fat content in yogurt and in cheese, it's not having the effect on blood cholesterol that one may predict. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right. What and and if someone's listening and thinking, okay, that's that's interesting. And you mentioned there some of the properties of butter mm-hmm. that that lead to butter having this effect on cholesterol. But are there any sort of inherent properties? in cheese and yogurt that are possibly explaining you know why you don't see that that some properties that are blunting
0: the effect of
1: saturated fat for example
0: yes there are a number that relate to the overall food matrix in this context so the main interaction is in relation to calcium itself um and a a thing known as the milk fat globule membrane i'll explain what that means and then there's potentially also a role for the casein content within the protein as well within this whole food matrix so let's start with the fat content itself when when you have dairy fat before it's refined to produce a food like butter That fat, and particularly with fermentation, might actually kind of alter the properties of this. But the fat is wrapped within this casein protein matrix. Imagine that the fat is like surrounded by a kind of encapsulated layer. And this is known as the milk fat globule membrane. And when you have dairy fat within that kind of membrane, encapsulated Mm -hmm. within that milk fat globule membrane, it doesn't have that negative impact on blood cholesterol levels. And actually, it might have a role in kind of interacting with the liver to kind of slightly lower uh, cholesterol synthesis. And then you've got the calcium aspect as well which when consumed in the context of dairy, I mean, calcium, this is a property of calcium anyway, but when dairy foods specifically, you get the formation of what are known as calcium soaps. Um, and these are kind of complexes in, in, at the level of, of, of intestinal absorption that actually reduce the overall absorption of fat. And you see an increased excretion of fat Um, Mm -hmm. And so this is also something that is observed with dairy foods rich in calcium, like cheese or yogurt, but you don't see it with butter because the calcium is depleted during the churning to refine the butter. Mm -hmm. And so potentially it is an interaction with this mix of the casein matrix, the milk fat globule membrane, and the calcium within this whole food matrix Mm -hmm. And that is likely then something in terms of the casein and calcium content that's preserved with low-fat dairy produce. But with the low-fat dairy produce, you obviously have an overall less actual contribution of, of total dairy fat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is where we see more inconsistent kind of associations for the most part. But overall, you know, if you were really parsing it, Low-fat dairy produce, particularly, is associated with you know strongly, more strongly associated with reduced risk of stroke, for example, and other cardiovascular disease endpoints. Um, and it it's possible that it relates to these uh, factors that I've been describing. I mean these these mechanistic explanations have been shown in in interventions and in mechanistic research. So they're providing a degree of biological plausibility to why we don't see necessarily the risk associated with butter that you would see consistently in cardiovascular disease with foods that are kind of fermented in the way of, say, cheese or or yogurts.
1: After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Has anyone gone a little bit more granular because I guess as I'm kind of, picturing the grocery shelf or, or foods at a restaurant, uh, mozzarella cheese, you know, looks like it, it. it's fairly different to say a camembert or a brie in terms of processing. And then from a yogurt perspective, there's, you know, Greek yogurt and, and a whole bunch of other types of, of yogurt. Um, do we know anything about the specific types of cheese and yogurt and their kind of unique effects on on cholesterol and and other risk factors?
0: I I haven't seen necessarily any specific... I mean, within individual studies, yes, I mean, I can think of one that was um, conducted by one of the the groups at University College Dublin, and they used cheddar specifically, and they did have a differentiation between, like, the fat content of the cheddar, um, but it wasn't comparing, say, cheddar to camembert. um, And so um that obviously would be really interesting i think ultimately you know that the kind of the properties of the process of fermentation itself are are likely yielding similar-ish characteristics um but i haven't necessarily seen that level of like comparison other than within single studies and the specific selection of foods that they've used uh but like i said i i didn't um you know, that some of those studies haven't compared specifically mm-hmm. the actual types of, of cheese necessarily. So
1: that's, that's yogurt, cheese and and butter. Are there any studies that
0: have looked at milk and cholesterol levels? Yes. Uh, and this milk has been used again in some of the experimental kind of early like metabolic ward studies. Um, and the, the the role of milk and milk uh, the fat content of the milk seems in some degree to be mediated by the background level of, of total saturated fat in the diet um and if it's you know if it's high you might get like more of a contribution overall to the adverse effects on LDL cholesterol of a high total saturated fat diet Mm -hmm. Um, And in the context of a low background, lower background saturated fat content, it it appears to be like not as having the kind of neutral to to kind of slight lowering effect that milk or dairy would, or sorry, that cheese or yogurt would. Um, it, It appears to be like slightly neutral or having a modest raising effect. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 the epidemiology certainly of of milk specifically as it relates to cardiovascular disease um, is largely uh, either kind of mixed or null. But again, when you then parse that right, because we we're now using another kind of umbrella term, right? We're saying milk, right? Can we differentiate yeah. that even further in relation to its fat content? And that's where you will find more um, potentially consistent associations with milk overall, like whole milk, having a kind of neutral effect. Some studies, again, depending on the population, you might find high milk consumption associated with an increased risk, and this is whole milk now, but low-fat milk and low-fat dairy consistently Mm -hmm. associated with the other direction of effect and Mm -hmm. lower risk of hypertension, stroke, and other cardiovascular-related outcomes. How important here is considering the comparison
1: food or substitution? So if studies showing that dairy or certain type of dairy is increasing risk or neutral or reducing risk, um, it's always being sort of compared to something or, or people that are presumably getting their calories from some other food. Mm-hmm. And so this gets me sort of wondering, because you mentioned there, like saturated fats in in dairy are different to to say red meat and 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 seem to have a different effect on cholesterol. And I'm thinking of that study uh, by Chen., yeah. you and I have shared that a few times. The one looking at the US uh, cohorts and mm-hmm. and they were looking at the substitution. Can you kind of speak to, I guess, the, the, what you think of that paper and, and the relevance of this substitution?
0: Yes. So I think this is a really important uh, kind of question that relates both to our specific topic here in relation to dairy, but also, you know, coming back to this idea of methodology, uh, you know, improving and, and considering methodology. Uh, because th- this this question of compared to what I think is getting probably used maybe in the wrong context in some of the social media conversations, um, you know, ultimately these substitution analyses are something that are becoming much more uh, popular as an approach because they allow you to model the changing effect of a certain amount of energy in the diet one nutrient for another, for example, um, and that allows you to, on paper, model more realistic change. But it's a statistical concept primarily in used in regression analyses, and I think it's it's really important that we note that 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 effect of what you're essentially swapping in that analysis still relates to the the the, the population you are comparing. Right this mm-hmm. replacement and substitution in. So I think this is a really um, becoming a more common methodological approach, but we need to also um, be careful with uh, how we then interpret and extrapolate that. And I'll, I'll contrast the Chen paper with, with some other research in this. Mm-hmm. And then I think we need to be careful about over-simplistically assuming that nutrient-based substitution necessarily then automatically translates to food-based substitution Uh, and you know food-based substitution is slightly more kind of difficult to do for a few reasons but you know if you're going to change five percent of energy from any type of fat dairy fat or whatever uh, with another fat subtype you have to then think well what would these food-based changes amount to in the population Um, and that becomes a relevant consideration for for wider nutritional changes in that diet And then the final consideration I would say, like before we kind of jump into it, is I see this compared to what I think more kind of oversimplistically being used to just then make these food-based, well, you know, what if this food replaces that food? And it's like, that's not really how people make changes with diet, right? You know, we're not talking about just we, we could stand up any food, one food against another, and say, this was the relative risk in that study, and this is the relative risk in that study, so this is better. And again, it's, it's not really uh, an accurate reflection of, of dietary change.
1: Mm. You need to consider the, the practicality component as well is often lost. Sure. So for example, if you consider, say, replacing dairy with whole grains, well, that's, that's interesting, but they're, they have different utility. Yes. so it's it's not really a great comparison from the point of view of when someone's standing in front of the shelf yeah if they're not if they're going to put that that bottle of milk down what what are they going to choose instead and and that's one thing that I've often thought about these substitution analyses is that they need to introduce a kind
0: of reality aspect to them right it becomes too either or right because Mm -hmm. if we're building always back up to the level of dietary pattern why can't someone consume their greek yogurt and their whole grains right so it's just we need to just think slightly more about how we extrapolate these things but the the chen paper you were referencing was an an analysis of the three major u.s cohort studies so the nurses health study one and two and the health professionals follow-up study And they were looking at dairy fat, and then they were looking uh, specifically then at modeling replacing dairy fats with other fat subtypes, right? And in particular, polyunsaturated fat replacing dairy fat, and this is polyunsaturated fat, kind of plant sources, vegetable oils, nuts, seeds, was associated with a 24% Relative risk reduction of cardiovascular disease, 26% lower risk of coronary heart disease, 22% lower risk of stroke. And these were quite robust findings in terms of the precision of the estimate of effect. And, but, but this is nothing necessarily that new to us, right? Because we know that just generally speaking, the replacement of polyunsaturated fat from these sources, replacing any other fat subtype, even if they replace monounsaturated fats relative to the source of monounsaturated fats, we're going to generally see this benefit. We're talking about, from a cardiovascular health perspective, the most beneficial of the fat subtypes. And then we have to think about like the background population that these studies are conducted in overall, where we're not talking about high diet quality for the most part compared to other cohorts. And, and then the second point is that, okay, what is this food base? So we're talking about a simple nutrient exchange in a regression model. What's the potential implication of that? down, you know, down the line, for example. Um, And actually, there's a really interesting follow up from that from a group that uh, looked at what would be the food based implications of doing this nutrient based change, right? So you remove 5% of dietary energy from the dairy fat, and you have a knock on effect then in terms of so to do that would require eliminating 65% of total dairy foods then from that individual's diet. That's a big change. So when we talk about these substitution studies, we say 5% replacement of energy, of energy. So Mm. people think 5%, that's nothing. No, but to achieve that 5% change of energy at the level of foods would require someone eliminating essentially Mm. two thirds of their current intake of a food group and that would have ramifications for their dietary calcium, vitamin A, vitamin B12, and vitamin D, which were the specific nutrients of interest looked at in that study that considered the food-based replacement. So it's not as simple as just saying this change translates automatically to kind of this, and there's for the American population, there would be different. Now, You haven't seen that quite level of similar substitution analysis in wider cohorts, but if you look at some of the data from the European prospective investigation into cancer cohorts, you you typically see these kind of null associations with modeling replacement and substitution, uh, even with polyunsaturated fats. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that again, the types of foods, like milk is the is the biggest intake in those US cohorts. It's typically not in, in a lot of the European cohorts. It's more cheese and yogurt. Um, and there's background saturated fat content as well is lower in some of these European cohorts. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of different factors that are going into the outcomes of these studies so while absolutely in that us population of those three cohorts that was the outcome i would say that yeah like in that if we're going to really realistically interpret that for the for the population studied are they better off shifting either their total you know, dairy intake or their choice of dairy. Milk is like the most, the biggest contributor in the background and their overall dietary pattern. Yes, they're a a population with low background diet quality um, and a range of other factors going into it. So, but I think we need to be careful not to then take an analysis of three cohorts and extrapolate that as holding true invariantly across every other population.
1: Playing devil's advocate here, and this probably again, applies more to particular Western countries, but where cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and I believe the average LDL cholesterol is about 120 to 130 milligrams per deciliter. Mm. Would it not be sensible to swap that glass of of full-fat dairy milk for, and I'm going to say it, a glass of soy milk? (laughs) <laughs> oh, you're
0: just you're just <laughs> playing to my love of soy now. <laughs> my fridge is, full. Um, yeah. I think. Look, I think that there, I think that there. This is where we can probably, you know, start to be a bit more granular at the level of some of these food-based considerations that we're discussing. Um, I think for for these for these substitutions, particularly if we're talking about dairy milk. Uh, There's still a long way that a lot of the kind of plant substitute milk alternatives need to come in terms of matching nutritional content. But that's an industry thing. And I think that that is very much happening. There's, you know, milks now here that are starting to fortify with iodine that needs to become more widespread. I personally think it should be mandated because milk would be the biggest in the mm-hmm. UK population certainly is the biggest contributing food to overall population iodine status. So mm-hmm. I would say if we're talking about cardiovascular risk, yeah, would that be a good food swap probably for someone that's looking to get their cholesterol like lower, but overall but again this this comes into the nitty-gritty of why we can't just necessarily broadly and very generally make some of these kind of recommendations without actually thinking about other ramifications for the total diet and nutrient intake. Um, but yeah, I mean, if someone was consuming, if I think about, for example, just to run with the UK example, population-wise, and we're kind of still sitting at this like 13% dietary saturated fat content, Right. And even though, yes, we can make these kind of uh, somewhat exceptions for yogurt or cheese, they're not foods that are consumed in particularly high amounts. You might get like an average of like 80 grams a day yogurt and maybe 30 to 60 grams a day of cheese. They're not foods that are being consumed. They're not major contributors to that overall saturated fat content. Uh, Mm -hmm. So would someone consuming a high intake of whole milk uh, be... Uh, from a cardiovascular health perspective, assisted by replacing that and helping to reduce their overall sat fat content down to ten percent of food energy or lower, then I would say yes, that's a good swap to make. Mm. Um, but we would then want them to be considering about these other factors, right? Mm. Um, and and helping them understand where to fill in any potential kind of mm. yeah. You know, I Iodine was the really good example we just mm. used there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think the the. Uh, nutrition dietetics world would definitely welcome mandating iodine fortification in plant based milks. I know that I used to I used to talk about the importance of I mean I still do the importance of iodine particularly uh, on a plant based diet. The more you move towards plant exclusive, there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that the prevalence of iodine deficiency increases. Mm-hmm. Um, as you remove dairy and seafood in particular um, from the diet. And I did previously used to also recommend seaweed, but with more reading and looking at the the sort of inconsistent levels of iodine that are in seaweed and yeah. also the, the ability for people to sustain that and adhere to that in their diet can be a bit tricky. Currently, my advice is if you're not consuming dairy or uh, seafood, is iodized salt, or probably uh, better off with an iodine supplement. But I would love to see it through the the, the food system in plant based milks and yogurts.
0: Yeah, I agree. And you know they're they're doing things, obviously, like with B twelve more consistently. Um, but but there's little things like there's a lot of them still fortify with vitamin D two, which is not you know bio equivalent to D three. There are D three that you can get. Now to fortify from mm-hmm. like non, you know, animal sources from algae. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so look, this is this is this is all the, the, you know that the, they're kind of you know important aspects to consideration of replacement in a diet. And you know, I think it's one of the the, the things that you do particularly best within the plant based community is I think there's a lot of people now that are just kind of shying away almost afraid to admit that there's oh there's these things you're going to consider and i think you do a great job Mm. for the community of being responsible and actually considering uh, these are the ramifications of these changes and let's have a conversation about how you can go about making sure that you get what you need yeah well i guess i mean
1: all diets pretty much all diets you know have some sort of limitation or area that you need to focus and get educated on and Rather than pretending they don't exist, yeah. <laughs> better off <laughs> identify them yeah. and plan accordingly, and and you're likely to get the best result. You mentioned there that 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 dairy's not actually pre- uh, accounting for most of the saturated fat, at least in the U- in the the diet in the UK. And if if someone is is listening and is thinking, well, what are the foods that actually are contributing to most of the saturated fat intake? What are they?
0: Yeah. So it's interesting now it's like, you know, so yes, whole milk still does make a a contribution, but it's nowhere near where it was. Um, a lot of the saturated fat in the diet now still comes from meat and meat products and meat being a, a kind of an overall term here, right? Like, you know, beef, pork, lamb. Um, and so beef and beef products and then confectionery, you know, biscuits and cakes and you know chocolate and this kind of thing um so it's 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 the, the the biggest contributors overall are you know meat meat and meat products and uh and confectionery of of various sorts mm-hmm. um and yes like whole milk does make a contribution to that but again if we were thinking about and i know we use that example of would someone benefit from replacing their you know 300 mil of whole milk with 300 milk of soy but if we were going even more granular with that again and thinking well overall diet quality as it relates to cardiovascular disease, I wouldn't be telling someone to, you know, make any sort of, like, change if it didn't necessarily come with, say, thinking about their meat intake and the, like, level of, I guess, discretionary foods in the diet, you know? There's Mm -hmm. there's lower hanging fruit to pick there than someone having a glass of milk. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah, that's uh, a good... Good bit of perspective. Um,
1: one study that sometimes comes up here, Alan, is the pure study. Yeah, that I see people point to as evidence that 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 dairy lowers the risk of cardiovascular disease, sort of across the board. What did you make of the pure study? What do you, What are your thoughts on the the kind of
0: findings from it? Yeah, so. In so far as we just made the point in relation to the Chen analysis of US cohorts that we need to really always think about population specificity, that exact same c- consideration has to apply to PURE, but in the almost inverse of what we would consider when we're thinking about a Western and kind of industrialized population. The majority of the cohorts in PURE was conducted across 18. Um, different countries, the majority of which were low to middle income, in which there was an enormous proportion of the cohorts in nutritional inadequacy across different ranges. And so the idea that there was this uniform reduction across the board, where we wouldn't typically see that in a Western industrialized population. We would typically see more granular, well, this food neutral, this food maybe associated, you know, if we're talking about dairy, say low-fat dairy, more associated, butter associated with increased risk. The the fact that like you've got this umbrella finding for dairy in these cohorts is is should be considered unsurprising because we're talking about populations largely that had a lot of nutritional inadequacy, in which the addition of nutrient-dense food groups is going to have a benefit, where a lot of these cohorts were relying on kind of dietary staples, like white rice. So we even saw people use pure to say that overall saturated fat is associated with lower risk of cardiovascular disease. But you look at the spread of intake in pure, and they were comparing people with only two percent of dietary intake. Even if you're ex- ex- exclusively plant-based, you'd have more than your total daily energy intake from than two percent of saturated fat. So the, these were, these, were, these were nutritionally vulnerable populations a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And so the context in which dairy is consumed in, in a lot of these populations is entirely different to the background right. context in which dairy is being consumed. In a country with high animal meat intake and and high saturated fat and high processed food intake, and mm-hmm. and a good a good example of that, I think for listeners at a slightly more kind of granular example, is you know if you look at populations in India uh, that and there has been research looking specifically at the you know, potential, uh, so that you've got a high prevalence of stunting in the population, and mm-hmm. they've looked specifically at the contribution of proteins in the diet to, you know, to to maintaining, you know, uh, overall growth trends. And even like minor additions of say, you know, 200 mil of milk a day would would almost be sufficient to, you know, dramatically reduce the incidence of stunting in these populations. So it's the context that really matters here in terms of mm-hmm. who are we researching, what's the background diet, what's their nutritional adequacy overall, and what's the context of this food being added to. So I, I, I would I would be really hesitant with the the way that pure is generalised by people um, across the mm-hmm. board, you know. Yeah,
1: I think that's a really,
0: it's a, probably
1: a whole nother conversation about the childhood stunting, but um, something I've thought about when considering, I guess, the ethical aspects of dairy, we often think about the, the animal welfare issues, which are extremely important, but there's also a, a kind of human ethics conversation around food security as well. And that kind of ties back to my interest in precision fermentation. Um, I'm not sure if it is going to be a solution to some of that stuff, but um, hopefully, it could be.
0: I, I think it's. I think it's a really incredibly. Um, pr- and I haven't listened to the full episode yet, um, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to to actually listening to what this kind of technology um, can, can potentially do as well. Because yeah, like, like you said, if there's, if there's the capacity to produce this absent the uh, animal welfare implications and and environmental implications, then why not? (laughs) Because it's, you know, because you have the capacity to produce, you know, healthy foods that can form part of a healthy dietary pattern.
1: And the other, uh, thing that I just wanted to comment on there when you were talking about pure, is the, what you just discussed then is another reason for why often when we're thinking about a certain food and whether it's healthy or not or has a negative effect on health or a positive effect on health, sometimes it's quite helpful to look within the one population who live very similar lifestyles and, and break down their kind of exposure into quintiles, for example?
0: I, I think that we need to always be kind of g- granular uh, with uh, looking at a given population um, and thinking about, it. because even though, you know, we can use things like adjustment models, right, to try and isolate more independent effects of a given exposure on your outcome, that adjustment model doesn't wipe away the background character, characteristics of your mm-hmm. cohort. You're, you're you're weighting an average of that of that variable across your whole cohort. So people say, "Oh, well, here's this study in this population, and they adjusted for smoking." It's like it doesn't mean that the participants never smoked, right? <laughs> like it's not an absolution of smoking twenty cigarettes a day. So my point here is that we need to be careful with potentially falling into ecological fallacy when we just say well here's this cohort in the US and they found this and it's like well and here's this cohort in Sweden and they found this and it's like that that's probably too simplistic a comparison Um, and you know, when we reconcile evidence and when we try and piece together consistency with evidence, it's important that we're really considering a lot of these factors. So just as an example, and I I know we've, we've kind of discussed this before, but I think it's a good example to bring people to, to kind of like what we're talking about here. And it's, it's not in relation to dairy specifically, it's in relation to red meat, right? So you will consistently find in any of the U.S. cohorts high intake of red meat compared to low associated with any number of adverse outcomes, right? But then someone will come along and say, aha, well, here's this European cohort and there's no risk, or here's this Japanese cohort and they have lower risk, right? (laughs) But then you go and you look at the comparisons and the background characteristics and you find that high... Intake in the Japanese cohort was 77 grams a day, whereas in the US cohort, it could have been 177 grams a day. And then you look at the background characteristics of the high group, and in the US cohort, you see that the high red meat group also had the highest rates of smoking and obesity and other risk factors. But then you look at the Japanese cohort, and you actually see that in the lowest intake of red meat group, they had higher rates of smoking alcohol, lower vegetable and fruit intake, right? So it's the inverse. So the background characteristics of your comparison matter, and actually when you start to really get granular with dose, you can actually find more consistent associations at higher levels of intake, even in European Mm -hmm. populations. And that's where we're then able to come to a more overall conclusion that actually there is a strength of evidence here, but we need to be more granular with thinking about what exactly the exposure is in different populations. And I think that that absolutely, as a consideration, applies to dairy intake. Yeah, and absolutely, if we're taking, if you're you're studying a population on the Adriatic coast, and they consume a wider Mediterranean diet... Uh, including you know fish and otherwise, and you know plentiful plant foods, and they have dairy intake on top of that, and it's specifically more kind of yogurts, cheese, and in some cases, kind of things like goat's milk and otherwise. You 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 can't assume that that is this exact same exposure as a population in say the U.S. consuming butter like milk, high to like high meat intake, et cetera, right? A completely different dietary pattern in a population with a higher background risk. Um and so yeah, it's important that we think about all of these things and don't try to come to kind of overly general and simplistic conclusions if they're not available for us to do so. Are
1: there any other
0: sort of um markers of cardio
1: metabolic health that we haven't spoken about uh, perhaps some of of mario kratz's work or or other researchers looking at the the effect of dairy on these markers
0: um i mean I, th- I think i think some of the research on the 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 kind of the glucose tolerance is is interesting um i'm i'm still at this point less obviously the a lot of those, um, studies came from wider associations within the epidemiology of lower risk of diabetes, right? So they were like, well, maybe there is this, uh, benefit to, uh, dairy from a kind of more metabolic perspective rather than just from a purely, say, cardiovascular risk factor, uh, perspective. Um, And so, you know, that's being kind of looked at in a a number of interventions. But I think my sense of that literature is that it's slightly more inconsistent than the effects that we would see in terms of the uh, butter versus cheese studies in relation to blood lipids for example um Mm. you know if i look at like one of the particularly um with with some of the studies that came out of 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 kratz's group's research on this you know a, a lot of it was you know and people said well this is like no effect of dairy so it's probably not uh you know it's probably not what we thought it was so to speak as far as like potential like metabolic effects um and And actually, like a lot of that study was, you know more kind of secondary outcomes with this is like comparing low fat dairy to full fat dairy and looking mm-hmm. at different outcomes. Um, and really, what you saw was just no real difference in terms of oral glucose tolerance tests. And you saw this like this different indices, like the insulin sensitivity index, for example. And this was comparing, like, limited dairy, whole fat, or, like, high-fat dairy or low-fat dairy, and you saw, like, an increase in the ISI. But, like, the actual magnitude of these changes was really minor, a lot of them. And a lot of them were kind of more secondary outcomes. So I don't know that this was the kind of nail in the coffin to the potential role of dairy from a more metabolic perspective Mm -hmm. Um, than it sometimes is. Kind of made out to be.
1: Alan, was that in uh, healthy adults, or was that in uh, adults that had impaired blood glucose control?
0: Um, the participants in this particular study actually met. W- w- this is the obviously the uh, umbrella term of metabolic syndrome. So these were mm-hmm. participants with metabolic syndrome. So that gotcha. you know, th- this could be obviously a, a consideration as well. Um, But, you know, like, I think if we think about, say, the insulin sensitivity outcome, right? So there was no difference in the oral glucose tolerance tests. And then there was these differences in some of these insulin sensitivity kind of markers. One is the Matsuda insulin sensitivity index, right? And so with this, a score of less than, uh, like, 4.3 is an indication of insulin resistance. And the baseline... ISI scores for each group, limited dairy, low-fat, and high-fat dairy, was like 2.2, 2.4, and 1.2. So those in the high-fat dairy group, they they were all really insulin resistance at baseline, and the actual, the absolute change in the scores was pretty minimal, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, the baseline scores... Uh, and this 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 was the same for HOMA-IR as well. So over 2.9 indicates insulin resistance. The baseline scores were 2.5, 3.3, and 3.0 in the limited dairy, low-fat dairy, and high-fat dairy groups. So, And the absolute changes in these scores were fairly small. So I think this is an example with any study, but particularly intervention trials, where we need to think between statistical significance as an arbitrary mm-hmm. threshold of a p-value that was reached versus actual magnitude of change and uh, clinical um, meaningfulness or clinical significance right. so to speak
1: what was the 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 duration of that trial and was it were people just given a, a sort of set controlled portion of dairy calorie controlled
0: or were they was it ad-lib so it was 12 weeks um, and the kind of... They had like a, a run in period of like a month where they mm-hmm. basically li- like limited dairy to like like really low. I was thinking it was less than like three servings a week, um, mm-hmm. and then and then they were kind of randomized. Um, and they also had these kind of like periods where study foods were p- provided to participants to provide an energy surplus um and so this was kind of like a a study within the study these two five-day periods where they had this like surplus and this was consumed from you know like with the dairy foods Then on top of the energy surplus um and it was basically they were trying to see whether eating more dairy foods like led to a compensatory decrease in your energy intake from from other foods um, right, but yeah, like it was a food-based intervention, which was really good. So the full-fat dairy diet was like three and a half servings of you know uh, whole milk yogurt cheese a day, and then the low-fat dairy diet was also three and a half servings, but of non-fat versions of milk yogurt and cheese mm-hmm. um, against this low diet. So like, look, it, it, it was a really really good study in terms of like it's question it's I think the, the four win four week washing period was really good um uh but yeah I'm just I'm 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 not at a point just based on this research alone to say that there is absolutely no uh that that a either the findings are entirely representative of uh like a, a real like worsening um mm-hmm. in in a kind of an absolute sense like Homa ir is probably the one that like went up um but again the absolute changes were fairly small and like again the, the, the matsuda index even though that was statistically significant it's like you know the actual like mean change in, in each group uh was was small and their overall glucose yeah. tolerance test was was small uh was there was no significant difference and i think there's, a, there's an extra layer of geekiness. We can talk about the use of oral glucose tolerance test uh, results to try and calculate like insulin sensitivity. And it's not a particularly... Like, HOMA-IR is different because it's calculated from fasting mm-hmm. insulin and glucose. But I think we need to also kind of be... Um, you know, yeah, there, there's some limitations to kind of using mm-hmm. oral glucose tolerance tests as a tee T-off to, to calculate mm-hmm. insulin sensitivity. As a
1: kind of cliff note, um, what's your kind of cu- current position with regards to dairy and its effect on blood glucose levels, insulin sensitivity?
0: I think I would want to, well, in terms of blood glucose levels, certainly the OGTT from this study would suggest potentially not. Uh, like any sort of detrimental impact. Um, I think cohort studies, you know, like dairy, is dairy protective prospectively? Like if people who are otherwise healthy, is dairy intake, because of the findings based on this study, are we going to then say that dairy intake is associated with people developing type 2 diabetes? I think on the overall evidence, that's a difficult case to make right now prospectively in terms of the observation research particularly low-fat dairy is pretty consistently associated with with lower risk and we know that targeted interventions with whey proteins lower the magnitude of postprandial glycemic responses we've seen that with some of the preload studies so I think again we discussed the importance of being Granular with with your population that you're studying in a in a cohort study and not falling prey to over extrapolation. Um, and I think that that equally applies, of course, it does to intervention trials. So we could conclude that in mm-hmm. you know in those studies from Kratz's group, in participants with metabolic syndrome, dairy intake is likely not going to necessarily reverse the underlying metabolic dysfunction, and it might slightly worsen some aspects of insulin resistance. But the magnitude of that difference is is pretty small, um, and so I would I would be kind of <laughs> that unsatisfactory position of let's let's see some more research mm-hmm. come out on this topic first. But I think mm-hmm. for metabolic health, potentially, then one might actually want to think more about opting for low fat dairy produce.
1: Mm-hmm. On that point of dairy pr- or preloading uh, whey protein having a beneficial effect on blood glucose if i heard correctly yes that also sounds like something i've heard nicola guess talk about with regards to protein so is that something that is specific to whey protein or just protein in general having this sort of beneficial knock-on effect
0: overall we do know that dietary protein and higher dietary protein is kind of generally beneficial for uh like glycemic control but they're The interventions to date that have looked at the preloading do certainly suggest that whey protein in particular and uh, has has a beneficial effect on postprandial glucose responses to a meal then subsequently, and they're usually served about 10 to 15 minutes after that protein preload. And it it might Mm -hmm. be because the, for the, for whey protein in particular seems to be um, quite insulinogenic, um, but it's not just that it has this effect on insulin. Specifically, it activates and and you know creates quite a quite a, a big response from incretin hormones. So these are things like GLP one and GIP, and the, those incretin hormones augment the insulin response. Now, when we're thinking metabolic health, I was actually talking to Drew about this recently. Um, you know, it's kind of like, well, we're talking about people with diabetes. Do we, do we want a big insulin response? But it's like, this is first phase insulin response. So this is a good thing. Okay. So you're, you're getting this stimulation of GLP-1 and GIP that augments your first phase insulin response. So you get that response from the, from the pancreas and the beta Mm -hmm. cells, and, and you get this kind of lowering of postprandial glucose. But there's also another mechanism that's independent of insulin, which is interesting, which is that GLP-1 feeds back to the stomach and kind of has a role in regulating the pace of gastric emptying. And if you slow the rate of gastric emptying, you get an attenuated time (laughs) course of delivery of glucose to the blood. Now, to your question, and I did discuss this with, with, with True, okay, is it specific to whey? The short answer is we haven't had any of these studies compare a whey to like a soy protein for at the same level of protein or even at the same level of leucine. Now, is, it the, is it the amino acid composition P- potentially? So I think that research would be really interesting to do. Some of the mm-hmm. studies have looked at protein and fiber mixed together in these kind of bars. And of course, you know, fiber you might have an effect on slowing gastric emptying anyway. Um, but we we currently don't have studies that have specifically compared protein types on this postprandial response. And I think that would be really interesting to do. I might have to uh, make a phone call to Big Soy after yeah. this and uh,
1: <laughs> I'll see if they can come up with some sort of high fiber tofu bar. They can, um, they can fund me. I'm all about
0: soy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um,
1: you know, something else that comes up here, and this is kind of comes back to the question I asked about how long was this study, was it ad lib, is energy balance and and of course uh, weight gain will increase the risk of uh, type 2 diabetes, fatty liver disease, etc., non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And I'm interested, if I recall correctly, was it this study and, and what you mentioned or has Kratz separately looked at whether full-fat dairy is kind of inherently fattening like some people may assume compared to to low-fat dairy do we do we have any sort of sense if you add dairy into someone's diet whether it results in uh an increase in in
0: caloric intake yes yeah, so, so this was so when we were discussing that the approach to that um really cool kratz intervention uh, mm-hmm. we kind of mentioned that there was this like study within a study. So there were these right, five... Right, okay, so that was that. Yeah, so there was these periods of like five-day controlled feeding periods, right? Separate five-day, two separate five-day periods of controlled overfeeding to achieve a 25% energy surplus in the context of this additional, uh, of the dairy food consumption. So, mm-hmm. so they were asked to continue consuming their dairy foods and then consume the rest of the desire the 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 diet with the target of overconsumption obviously um to but to a level desires they didn't have to eat the entire 25% energy surplus because what was being tested was if you're eating these dairy foods and you're you're hitting your 3.3 servings a day and we're offering you all this extra food is there some kind of Compensatory response mm-hmm. that that eating dairy foods might give you. Um so, but there was there there was an increase in energy intake in both groups, and that greatest increase was in the high-fat dairy group. But again, that this was predictable because in the five-day period of this kind of like, you know, study within a study overfeeding the low-fat dairy group had like 281 extra calories a day, and the high-fat group had 463 extra calories Mm -hmm. a day. And so, you know, an analysis finds then a relationship between, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, extra energy intake um, and, and body weight, and they're like, well, but... But, you know, from what I could ever see in that paper, there was actually no claim or hypothesis made about the potential satiating effects of dairy foods. So, so when I looked at that study, the kind of way I framed the the outcomes of that study within a study is like, it's like they were saying, we fed participants more, and then they didn't eat less, and body weight increased. <laughs> it's like... Well, you know, so I'm 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 cautious on really making any sort of of interpretation on that, you know. Um, mm-hmm. It's if if it was in the context of you know a more free living, where you're feeding people these foods and then looking at is there uh, like an enhanced reduction in energy or something? I think that would be a potentially more direct effect. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's like it's literally saying we fed participants deliberately more and then they didn't mm. eat less. <laughs> so, and, right. and and body weight increased. So yeah, of course mm-hmm. that happened, you know.
1: So what would you do if you were say you wanted to lose weight mm. and uh we're speaking here about someone that consumes dairy? Would would you have a, a, a preference
0: over full fat versus low fat dairy? I probably would be thinking in this context about the very known and well established role of dietary protein generally in satiety, in, you know, uh, like enhancing adherence to diets, um, and all of the roles that increasing dietary protein has. So, yeah, I would typically end up recommending something like a non fat Greek yogurt simply because the protein content. Of that, you know, you're getting like 11 grams per hundred grams in the context of no added fat, and you know, just normal kind of dairy, dairy sugars, carbohydrates, and it's only like three to four grams if it's not a flavored one. So yeah, like a natural, non-fat, high-protein Greek yogurt, something like a Skyr, you know, the Icelandic Greek yogurt, or any, any kind of high-protein Greek yogurt would typically be the type of food I was recommending to someone mm-hmm. from that context but that's really just aiming for like getting something that's like not overall high in energy. Uh, so it's low energy density, but high, very high in protein. And, um, you know, and, and that's the, ben- that's possibly the benefit there. I recently had uh, professor Christopher Gardner on mm. the show
1: or back on, he's been on a few times and I'm sure you saw his, uh, I think it was 17 week. I think it was a uh, 10 week, intervention on fermented foods with a run-in period, fermented foods and and fiber um, that he did with Justin Sonnenberg. And they were looking at markers of inflammation Mm -hmm. and how some fermented foods may affect these versus fiber. Um, Where I'm going with this is not the specifics of that study, but rather that they, they did to see seem to see some reduction in uh, in markers of inflammation on the fermented food group um, yes. side of things quite consistently. And within that intervention was some advice to include kefir, which is a, a dairy product. You can get it non-dairy. Um, but I think their recommendation in that study was a dairy version. They also recommended the consumption of yogurt, in addition to foods like kombucha and kraut and kimchi and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's quite, it's a little hard to kind of tease out the inde- independent effects of single foods, but nonetheless, they saw that when people were eating these fermented foods, it seemed to reduce some markers of inflammation and seemed to change the microbiome in a way that current evidence would suggest is favorable. There does seem to be a lot of claims out there however that dairy is pro-inflammatory i see it online quite a bit and I, i think some of the listeners will have come across that so i'm interested in what you think of that idea where it comes from and if we look at the overall evidence that exists what you think about dairy and its effect on inflammation
0: yeah, I don't really know where it comes from. I mean, it might just be part of the wider, you know, uh, kind of general neg- negative press <laughs> um, that, that that dairy gets. Um, and I, I don't know why it's kind of held on to specifically. But certainly from the perspective of, you know, uh, interventions that have looked at this um, and even mechanistic understanding, Like there is little to know. I mean, there was a huge, there was a big um, uh, review in 2017 or 18, which had 52 intervention trials looking at inflammatory markers and they constructed this inflammatory score. Um, And basically, you know, this showed the opposite, like an anti-inflammatory overall effect of... Uh, of of dairy products in humans. Um, And particularly in subjects with metabolic disorders, there was a stronger anti-inflammatory effect of dairy in people uh, that had like a metabolic condition. There was evidence of a pro-inflammatory effect in people that had an allergy, a cow's milk allergy, which is typically a cow's milk protein allergy. I mean, that's not... That's not a that's not a, a a finding we should be too shocked at because they they have a specific cow's milk protein allergy um, and so yeah um, this this also interestingly didn't depend on the actual fat content of the milk so um, low or high fat or and fermented dairy produce as well. Um, overall again, anti-inflammatory effects of of the food group. So I don't really know where the claim comes from. i I do know it's pretty divorced from the reality of the evidence. And also you know again the mechanistic plausibility. what I found interesting, you know about the about the the kefir and the kind of fermented context of the trial was you know when we think about the role of dairy in relation to like gastrointestinal cancer which we typically right. know is is a is a is a cancer particularly mediated by inflammatory processes um especially in the colon um and we have really you know fairly consistent uh, direction of effect and associations between um you know, kind of milk, cheese, dietary calcium from dairy as well, and, and reduced risk mm-hmm. of colorectal cancer. And it's possible that that relates to the anti-inflammatory effect mediated by beneficial effects of, of dairy kind of fatty acids interacting with um, certain kind of bacteria and the production of short-chain fatty acids, the contribution directly of short-chain fatty acids from some dairy foods. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that there's really any good evidence to support that dairy is inflammatory unless we're talking about someone mm-hmm. with a cow's milk protein allergy, in which case they shouldn't be consuming dairy anyway.
1: Right. So that's, just to be clear, a cow's milk dairy allergy is different to lactose intolerance
0: yes 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 very yes yeah difference lactose intolerance is a deficiency in an enzyme required to uh digest and and properly break down Mm -hmm. the lactose sugar but the protein Mm -hmm. allergy is different yes
1: do you think someone with lactose intolerance would perhaps react differently from a from an inflammatory marker point of view than someone without it or with a, a lower degree of it uh it's less I a mean, degree
0: i i don't necessarily i mean uh, so, so i mean some research has compared people with say self-reported lactose intolerance rather than actually clinically confirmed lactose intolerance um mm-hmm. so i think i think the difference between a clinically confirmed versus self reported is important because you do get a high rate of self reporting that's very divorced from the actual incidence of clinically diagnosed lactose intolerance so i think that's one potential factor to to kind of bear in mind but you know like some of the studies like we do have evidence of greater dairy intake in in you know certain populations that don't historically have a lot of dairy consumption and so don't have like higher rates of that kind of um uh genetic uh, adaptation to lactose uh breakdown and consumption um and you know I don't think the evidence is is you know particularly overwhelming of mm-hmm. of, a, of a kind of a of an inflammatory effect even kind of in that context although it might depend again on the specific population being studied. Right. You mentioned colorectal cancer.
1: And I actually do think the pro-inflammatory pro-inflamm- and inflammation claims, I think a lot of them are attached to this conversation about dairy and cancer. Right. And I want you to clear this up for me because, and I did—I wrote, wrote about this in, in my book, so anyone who has, has uh, read that will have... Seen this, but Alan, if I jump on, say, PCRM's website, I would I would very quickly believe that that dairy just across the board increases risk of cancer. It just kills you. <laughs> uh, if I was to <laughs> read a few blogs, yeah. you know, I would leave that website with I I believe in my view, having looked at the research and the World Cancer Research Fund's summary of the research, I would leave the PCRM. Website and I think I'm being fair in saying this, I would leave their website with a very skewed view of dairy and its relationship with cancer. Mm-hmm. So can you clarify, uh, provide a summary of the the current evidence when we look at it in totality, what do we understand about dairy and different forms of cancer?
0: Yeah. So the, the, the three kind of most studied are, uh, colorectal, uh, breast cancer in women and, and prostate cancer in men. Um, and I mean, as an overall summary, the evidence for, uh, dairy calcium and then specific food sources of like cheese, um, milk, um, and total dairy as even a food group is all in relation to colorectal cancer associated with a lower risk. Um, And again, that's been the conclusion reached by the World Cancer Research Fund in their most latest synthesis of the evidence, which they graded as strong evidence that dairy in this umbrella term, overall reduces risk of, of colorectal cancer. And again, we, we've seen that in different cohorts. We've seen it in the Adventist Health Study 2. We've seen it in overall um, meta analyses that's included cohorts from Europe and otherwise. For prostate cancer, that is a little bit more um, inconsistent, but it's where you would find the opposite more regularly in outcomes. Uh, it, and by opposite, I mean. Um, a consistent increase in prostate cancer risk from either total dairy or milk cheese and calcium intake again. Um, now, if you parse that evidence that is most consistent in North American cohorts, and there does appear to be some mediating effect of dairy calcium within this, which has also been associated um, in with, with prostate cancer as an outcome, um the most kind of a couple of the most uh, recent like synthesis of the evidence um basically found that the main mediating effects of the association with prostate cancer were the location of the cohort the follow-up duration and the actual stage of the cancer so in north american cohorts you consistently find an association between total dairy Um, and specific foods, and prostate cancer, but you don't see that necessarily in Asian cohorts, and you see it way less consistency in European cohorts.
1: Is that potentially down to the exposure level, or is there something else you think that might explain that?
0: I I think it's a combination of the, the background characteristics of the populations, and included in that background characteristic is... The foods and the and and the overall level of of, of intake overall. I mean, again, the wow. the the foods that contributes the most do differ um, between these cohorts. But again, I think you know, in in certainly within the Asian cohorts, you do have overall more modest in t- levels of intake, and you do see a more modest level of intake depending on the European cohort included. Um, you do see more kind of moderate levels of intake. Um, particularly like cheese yo- and and more cheese yogurt than milk, depending on the cohort, and that 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 is very variable across cohort as to what dairy food contributes the most to the overall umbrella of total dairy intake. So the again, the World Cancer Research Fund conclusion in relation to prostate cancer is limited, suggestive, um, and I think that's fairly um, reasonably representative of the evidence that there is a suggestion of an increased risk of prostate cancer, but the evidence is limited and it, it, it might be that it's more kind of specific to uh, like these factors, like the actual cohort location and the background characteristics, and, and indeed like things like the follow-up duration and stage of cancer. So this is where I think we need to be careful with falling into ecological fallacy and just holding up one cohort in one place as representative of the exposure overall in all circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then the last one then is breast cancer. And again, this, this is an interesting one because this is something that gets a lot of, and breast cancer adds complexity to it because we don't just have stage of cancer potentially, but we also have the added factor of menopausal stage. Mm-hmm. So you know either premenopausal or postmenopausal, um, and so so this makes this particular question really complex because there's the type of dairy, high fat, low fat, you know, yogurt, milk, or cheese, or all of that that we've discussed, and then there's you know stage of cancer, and then there's are they estrogen receptor positive or negative, negative? <laughs> and then there's menopausal stage, um, so again, there's no necessarily kind of. Uh, like a simple answer, but overall, the cohorts, um, you know, in certainly in premenopausal women, um, and potentially as well with estrogen receptor positive, that there are lower risk uh, in those cohorts. In when we start to get granular in terms of defining participants according to some of these characteristics, then there are lower risks observed for dairy uh, consumption and breast cancer that aren't necessarily always observed in, say, people that are estrogen receptor negative. And there's some kind of potential um, suggestion that it's mediated by calcium and vitamin D intake. So again, does this necessarily mean that it's dairy per se or the contribution of these Uh, nutrients um, you know and is it possible to get these nutrients from other sources in the diet yeah after all yes absolutely but I think I think I think we you know the overall direction of effect um, is is relatively consistent toward a lower risk of dairy Mm -hmm. consumption and breast cancer there are a lot of complexities, like I said, with regard to the actual menopausal state status, the stage of the cancer, and whether it's you know estrogen receptor positive or negative, and the source of dairy. But mm-hmm. more consistently in premenopausal women, and again potentially mediated by estrogen receptor positive status, we'd see a reduction associated with dairy intake that's possibly mediated by calcium and vitamin D.
1: Mm-hmm. And this also, I guess, highlights this importance of if you are choosing for whatever reason to remove dairy, which of course is one of the the things that I want to be really clear here, that you, you do need to think about what you're replacing it with. And, yeah. and here we're emphasizing calcium and vitamin D potentially, the importance of their role in mediating this. Um, but also I think there should be uh, some importance on fermented foods mm-hmm. and if you're not consuming cheese and yogurts and fermented dairy, thinking about what fermented foods you have in your diet,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if I remember correctly from the research on like if you're say substituting dairy uh milk for like a soy milk um soy milk, the absorption of the fortified calcium in soy milk, if it's calcium carbonate is equivalent to calcium mm-hmm. absorption from cow's milk. But if it's fortified as uh, with tricalcium phosphate, that might be uh, kind of up to 20% lower calcium bioavailability so there's yeah there's there's factors um in terms of what it's fortified with that are Mm -hmm. um important and then yeah like you said it's it's luckily from the fermented food aspect of this it's certainly possible to get any range of fermented foods Mm -hmm. that are non-dairy in the diet whether that's sauerkraut or kimchi or or other fermented foods that are all kind of um you know plant plant plant-based yeah
1: and that's that point about different types of or forms of nutrients being absorbed differently. That's also something that I think should be well-researched and potentially standardized because mm-hmm. you do see a lot of different forms being used in the food system and then perhaps it depends on, on the food that you're working with. But um, I certainly think formulators should be considering absorption rates. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, if we change gears a little bit here, Um, I'm wondering, have you looked at any of the research on dairy and acne? I I know that there are a few studies or observational studies that suggest a link here. I'm wondering if that's something that you've kind of done. Yeah,
0: I I did um, actually for like a – I was – basically presenting or asked to present at a skin conference a number of years ago um before way before covid back in 2019 actually on uh, just nutritional factors in in skin um kind of health and influence and, and this is obviously kind of one of these um it's uh yeah yeah it's 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 a really messy area i think i think overall like top line is the actual research in this area is really poor quality overall. Um, lots of kind of little case reports and anecdotes. Um, and I've spoken at length actually about this with a friend of mine here, who's a clinical dermatologist and sees this a lot. And so drawing out cause effect type relationships really isn't possible with the, with the Data that's there, like I said, a lot of it is either observational or you know case reports in in in, in a handful of mm-hmm. people. Um, anecdotally, from speaking to people in Durham, there it does appear to be a certain type of uh, person, um, often adolescent males who are chugging, you know, way on top of on top of all of their dairy intake and milk who do see a, an improvement um, in their acne with like a reduction in or maybe even elimination of just the kind of like excess powder consumption, um, protein powder consumption. Uh, again, that's anecdotal. So I'm just kind of throwing that out there as the mm-hmm. caveat. Um, you know, and people have said, oh, is it the IGF-1? Is it otherwise? It's kind of like, well, you know, again, there's there's not really that good data to support mm-hmm. that kind of like link between dairy and, and and acne but there are observations that are there and i know that you know there, there there is i think in someone who certainly does have a very high like say whey protein intake or um or or total like milk intake in particular that some people might might have a benefit to you know removing or 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 eliminating um that kind of high level of intake particularly like i said kind of adolescent or like early kind of men in their like early 20s Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah but 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 this is you know a lot of this is just kind of well is there a harm in trying this if someone you know deals with acne um, as opposed to anything robust at the level of evidence, which it's really not. the The research on on skin and uh, generally speaking on nutritional exposures is really, really poor quality evidence. There's one really. Uh, it's quite a
1: small um, study. Um, it'd be interesting for you to to talk to your dermatologist friend about. It looked at a, a congenital condition. I think it's a Laron syndrome, Laron, or Laron syndrome i'm not sure if okay. you've come across it but no. it's it's a genetic condition where people have igf1 deficiency right and this is a small paper but it's an interesting thing to think about um they had this this group of people with this condition who were given exogenous igf1 okay and they noticed that there was an increased um, risk of acne in those who took above the recommended dosage of IGF one, which right. then subsided when the dosage was reduced. Right. I thought that was interesting. It's a it's a very small study. I'll flick it your way. Yeah, um, to yeah, to too, have a yeah. look at.
0: That's that is interesting. And so, like within a certain range, no effect. But once they're kind of over, and this is being provided like intravenously or like like an injection or.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. To my knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, 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 yeah.
0: I'll definitely, yeah, ask about it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I think anything that could add to that evidence base, like it's really poor quality, and often they're really like weird proxy outcomes, and they're often very subjective outcomes as well. So, like even in the case reports, it's like someone being like, "Yeah, I looked at their skin; it looked better." <laughs> you know? Yeah. It looked like they had less acne after getting rid of the dairy. So yeah, it's 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 just. It's very poor quality evidence. But yeah, again, like I said, anecdotally it does appear that there is a, a kind of a phenotype of 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 person that might benefit to that reduction or elimination, particularly if they're going really hard on whey protein powders. Okay. We're coming towards the end here, but we can't
1: we can't finish this one without talking about dairy and bone health. Yeah. The, the dairy industry has definitely been telling us for years that dairy is a great source of calcium, which it is, and really important for building strong bones. Is
0: this, is this just good marketing or is it supported uh, by data? It's, it's a combination, right? It's, it's certainly obviously blown to the maximum it possibly can be by the industry, by the marketing side. But, you know, for from a bone health perspective, it's really not just the calcium in isolation that makes dairy interesting. It's rich in phosphorus and zinc. Um, vitamin D is often fortified in a lot of different countries as well. Um, and then there's dietary protein content, which we know from some of Best Dawson Hughes's research. There's like an interaction between dietary protein and calcium on things like bone mineral density. Um, It may relate as well to baseline calcium intake. If you see a significant increase in bone mineral content, that's often more robust in participants where their baseline calcium intake is low. And so does that mean that it's dairy foods necessarily, or does it just mean that they're a really good source of calcium and it's the bump up of calcium that's giving you this beneficial effect? And again, could that be achieved with soy milk, for example? Like These are somewhat open questions right now the epidemiology again is is relatively mixed and it depends a lot on background uh population characteristics um and depends on the actual kind of outcome whether it's like you know f- uh, hip fracture risk or or just overall fracture risk um, so the uh, and then there's also a, a potential life stage mediating effect so there's the potential that actually there's a protective effect, you know, kind of um, that accrues during adolescence and that you potentially don't see that specifically in adulthood, particularly for milk intake. Um, again, there, there has been analyses that have stratified further and yogurt and cheese pop up again as beneficial and associated with lower hip fracture risk. Um, but I, I think perhaps the most... Um perhaps the most um interesting uh kind of recent finding in relation to this actually comes from a, a, a pretty large intervention that was um conducted in Australia. And and this was a really, really uh like well-designed study at a number of issues that are specific to nutrition research um for example often interventions are conducted in people who have already you know sufficient in levels of intake of a given nutrient this was this was a um a randomized control trial In but where it was a cluster randomized trial. So with a cluster randomized trial, you're randomizing not the individual, but uh, things like a center or a school. They're often used in education research. It's like, oh, we'll randomize this classroom to do this thing, and that classroom is the control. So this was in residential care homes, and there was 30 care homes in the intervention and 30 in the control. And they deliberately had an inclusion criteria of care homes that weren't serving more than two servings of dairy a day. So they were aiming for people to have a low calcium intake of less than 600 milligrams, give or take. And what they were Mm -hmm. targeting was getting people up to around 1,300 milligrams of calcium and a gram of protein per kilo of body weight. And that increase coming from additional dairy foods. And they were specifically given... Two hundred and fifty mils of milk, two hundred grams of yogurt, or forty grams of cheese, and the aim was to use these foods to bump up and achieve these calcium targets, um, and and protein targets. And there was like three over three thousand people in the intervention group, and and 3, in the control. Um, and, and nearly 70% of participants overall were female, which is also a positive given their higher overall risk of like osteoporosis and fractures. Um, and they didn't quite achieve the calcium target, but they basically got to 1,100 milligrams a day, which in an elderly population is really impressive. <laughs> and they did hit the protein target. They got them to 1.1 grams a day. Um, and the difference in fracture rates was enormous. There was 121 fractures in the intervention group. 203 in the control group. So that was a relative risk reduction of like 33%, um, which was greater for hip fracture risk. It was 46% Mm -hmm. for hip fracture risk. Um, And the lines of like incidence started to diverge after five months. So five months into the study, the intervention group were were, uh, showing a benefit. Um, And there was Mm -hmm. also like a lower risk of, of falls. So It was a really well-designed study. They also held vitamin D constant throughout the trial. So they had sufficient vitamin D levels, but insufficient protein and calcium. So vitamin D was held constant while protein and calcium was increased. So I think that allows us to say that the effect derived was not confounded by kind of changes in vitamin D status Mm -hmm. um, from the increase in the foods. Um, And... You know, this is a really interesting study because the previous intervention trials, uh, certainly on supplemental, just calcium and vitamin D, not dairy necessarily, have provided really mixed results. The fact that this was a food-based intervention, I think, is probably the strongest element overall of of its kind of design. Mm -hmm. Now, the question then becomes, uh, do... Does this necessarily mean that, you know, dairy foods are, are again, a necessity for this kind of outcome? Mm-hmm. The short answer is we, we don't know because this study, and there isn't a study to date with this kind of design that has tested, hey, we're going to achieve this level of calcium and this level of protein in a population low in protein and calcium that are at risk of fractures. And we're going to compare achieving that with dairy foods Versus achieving it with, say, like soy foods, for example, right. soy milk and tofu. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that would be a really cool study to do, um, and then we'd really know whether there is a kind of food matrix effect of dairy in relation to bone uh, beyond just the actual nutrient compositions themselves. But certainly, mm-hmm. this study does really lend, you know, strong support to the the and and and. and kind of certainly helps to reconcile some previous evidence that, yeah, there is a benefit to these foods helping you achieve nutritional adequacy with really important bone health nutrients. Yeah, it's
1: uh, impossible to kind of ignore that given how prevalent osteoporosis is and and how detrimental fractures can be late in life. Um, Mm -hmm. I certainly think um, that's even more of a reason for me to get on the phone and call Big Soy after this. That's it. You know what? (laughs) You know, what's coming to mind though here is there's a paper, I think Walter Willett was one of the authors, if not the main author called Milk and Health, I think it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was a review. Mm. Mm. Do you see that?
0: I, I think, is this the one where they're saying that the actual calcium targets were like lower than we think? or is this a different- Yeah, paper? I think
1: they, they definitely covered that. But one of the things that I see um, many people talking about is that within that study, and this may come back to our earlier point about the difficulties of comparing um, foods consumed by different populations mm-hmm. with very different backgrounds. But one of the observations was that the countries who drink the most milk tend to have the, the, the most hip fractures. Sure, I'm interested in in what you think of that, and any ideas for what could explain this association. Because I think some people think that or see that and think, well, milk is causing these hip fractures.
0: Yeah. So, so it's it's this is more of a kind of an ecological fallacy comparison. Um, Yes, countries with Western countries in particular have higher rates of osteoporosis. Than, for example, historically East Asian countries or South Asian countries. That, that that itself is changing, though, right? So that historic association is no longer as robust a difference as you find. And if you look at incidence of fractures and hip fractures in Southeast Asian populations, South and East Asian populations, not Southeast Asian, um, then you're finding that the trends are catching up to the prevalence in. Uh, Western countries, and that might be mediated by a number of factors, aging demographics in terms of population, but also the nutrition transition and shifting to a more kind of westernized dietary pattern overall. If you look at the populations that do consume milk while having high rates of osteoporosis, there are also populations where widespread vitamin D, inadequacy, insufficiency, and deficiency is observed in that population. And again, you know, you can maybe have all the calcium in the world, but in the absence of adequate vitamin D, that might not necessarily just in isolation be sufficient. So there's a number right. of factors that go into those associations, but drawing the line between, you know, milk and dairy intake and, and that, mm-hmm. that fracture rate incidence is really not, uh, it's, it's falling very prey to ecological fallacy. Right. Yeah, I think that is a, a,
1: a takeaway that or a conclusion that most people can understand. and and particularly when you consider that building strong bones, although calcium is important, it is a team game.
0: It, and as
1: you say, things like vitamin D and b twelve and protein, all of these other, components of our diet are also very very
0: um important and and, and mechanical resistance right stimulation like physical exercise i think you know Mm -hmm. i think of, of 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 kind of 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 um importance i guess or interest to um people following plant exclusive type diets is an analysis from the nurse's health study which looked specifically at the um fracture risk relative to vegan diets versus the other kind of dietary patterns in the ahs 2 mm-hmm. cohort. And what they found was that while yes, there was a significantly like 50-55% higher risk of fracture rate in the vegan group, with calcium and vitamin D supplementation, that was no longer significant. So it's, mm-hmm. I, do, I do think it highlights that it's, it's perhaps these nutrients that are quite important, and while yes, dairy typically, particularly in countries mm. who fortify milk with vitamin D, will be a really good source of these foods, it speaks to me, obviously, that this is possible to achieve adequate levels of these nutrients of interest. Um, mm-hmm. following a diet that does not include dairy. So I think that would be the kind of take-home message mm-hmm. is just make sure you're really nailing your your calcium and vitamin D intake.
1: In addition to those things that you listed, it also seems important where possible to maintain a healthy body weight and to, to try and avoid being underweight when it comes to risk
0: of, of fractures. Yes, um, and that as obviously is something that within the epidemiology you would uh, observe typically is... People following certainly within the limited data we have from the cohorts where people are vegan, uh, like the AHS2 or some of the European uh, EPIC sub cohorts, is like lower body weight. Um, And there's that we would typically say, "Hey, that's a healthy thing." But actually, there's there's more of a prevalence of people with like a BMI of under 18. So it is something I think to bear in mind is that people are you know, if they're following a, certainly a plant-exclusive diet is like nailing their protein intake and overall energy intake and maintaining that mm. level of adequacy because certainly protein and calcium appear to have a really beneficial interaction effect on bone health. Right. Um,
1: and you mentioned the importance of resistance exercise. I had Stuart Phillips on the show a little while ago mm. and one thing that I'm really looking forward to, to seeing more research on is – looking at, I mean, we know that resistance exercise is such an important stimulus to both for bone, but also for muscle and sarcopenia. We haven't spoken about that, but that's also a big um, issue which can affect frailty and and falls and um, influence fractures. And it'll be interesting to see if some studies come out, hopefully they do, looking at the difference between animal proteins and plant proteins in the elderly population where anabolic resistance um, has, you know, set in at varying levels.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it would be, I think there's there is some interesting research on the kind of the anabolic resistance side, the potential of proteins, and, and even this is where there's interest in dairy proteins, right? Is potentially like having that kind of that anabolic effect that potentially is important in overcoming some degree of age-related anabolic resistance um, and sarcopenia. Um, And is this, again, something that is a unique property of things like, I don't know, whey protein or casein, or is it something that can be achieved with with absolute protein intake? And, And I think a lot of the evidence that we have on this question would likely overall point to you know the the potential to achieve a degree of parity, but like obviously factors like leucine content mm-hmm. and otherwise need to be need to be factored in. And again, it just so happens that dairy foods are typically foods at which it's very easy to get a mm-hmm. uh, a, a lot of you know essential amino acids and, and leucine in particular at relatively lower dose, total doses of the food intake. Mate, this has been super interesting.
1: Is there anything that you think we missed that? you perhaps wanted to add before we wrap things up?
0: Yeah, so I think it's important to hold these separate conversations in tension that we can have an objective assessment of the scientific research and the outcomes related to a food without that having an implication for how we would then consider that food or food group from an environmental or welfare standpoint. Um, And just because there is potentially, as we know, a negative contribution, so to speak, to a food group like dairy in terms of its production for, say, greenhouse gas emissions. That doesn't mean that the interpretation of the research on its health effects necessarily has to be negative as well. Um, And I think that people are really blurring the lines between those two, and there's just no need for us to do that. Mm -hmm. And so as a bit of a kind of summary here, if you want to bring us home...
1: Uh, it's been two and a half hours, so I'm sure that, that some folks are probably thinking, Alan, just tell me what to do. Um, if if someone is not including dairy in their diet, what should they be conscious of with regards to the replacements? And if someone is consuming dairy, what types and and how much per
0: day, roughly, would you recommend? Yeah, I think if someone's not consuming dairy at all, then I think that, you know, protein, calcium, vitamin D, and then potentially things like phosphorus. I doubt that's going to be an issue on a plant-exclusive diet. But protein, calcium, and vitamin D would be where you'd really want to be making up and making sure that there is nutritional adequacy in the diet. And again, that can be easily achieved with things like soy milk and other soy food produce, and obviously supplemental vitamin D and otherwise. So it's not a shortfall that is particularly difficult to overcome, but it is one that does require some consideration in terms of the diet. Mm -hmm. And then for someone that does consume dairy, I think if we really parse the research overall, where we're seeing a benefit is with dairy produce that is primarily of the fermented variety whether that's yogurt cheese and indeed kefir which is kind of a halfway house between yogurt and milk um milk seems like kind of neutral overall but depending on someone's health status and background um background total dairy intake and saturated fat content, they might want to think about maybe adopting a lower fat dairy, um, particularly if they did consume other animal forms of saturated fat. But I think overall we could say that the contribution of foods like fermented yogurts, dairy, uh, and things like kefir in population diets that have lower overall background saturated fat intake and wider healthful characteristics. uh, is, is is something that is not necess- going to be a concern uh, for their health and indeed may benefit across a range of outcomes.
1: Okay, great. Um, remind folks where they can catch you online if they'd like to hear more from you or to explore the, the deep dives that
0: you do. Yeah, so on Instagram, you'll find me at the nutritional underscore advocate. It's the only social media account <laughs> that I have the sanity to operate. And then you'll find me at alineanutrition.com, which is my research review-based uh, education hub and website. And also with Danny Lennon at Sigma Nutrition um, with our podcast episodes and uh, written statements. Wonderful. And there's, there's an
1: episode there on Sigma with Mario Kratz. So for those who are wanting more sort of information or specifics on his particular studies with regards to to dairy and some of those things we spoke about, I highly recommend that episode. Thanks, Alan, always a pleasure. Uh, Look forward to doing this again sometime soon. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did, and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I, myself, and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.